What is up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Sean Jones NBA Show. I'm recording this on Monday night, May 15th. We are actually off tonight. There are no games. Uh, and that is because the semifinals just wrapped up for both conferences. Uh, and we've got the Western Conference Finals kicking off tomorrow, followed by the Eastern Conference Finals kicking off the day after that. So a ton to cover today. I'm going to go through each of the semifinal series, talk about the winning team and how they got it done as well as the losing team and their outlook going into the offseason then i will give brief previews on the both conference finals matchups and say who i think is going to win each of those and head to the finals so with that let's get right into it so i am going to start off with the 76ers and the celtic series because this is the one that just wrapped up on sunday afternoon in a game seven Um, After losing Game 5 by double digits at home and actually getting booed off the court for much of that second half, uh, the Celtics then came back with a huge uh, fourth quarter in Game 6 to steal a road win and stay alive uh, before absolutely embarrassing the 76ers in the second half of Game 7 en route to a 24-point victory. So the Celtics looked very up and down throughout this series, and perhaps there's no better reason why than their star player, Jason Tatum. Um, He was about as up and down as it gets. Um, And he finished the series averaging 29 a game, 11 rebounds, 5 assists, on 45% from the field, 37% from three, which is actually pretty funny because both those percentages and the totals are pretty much right in line with his averages. Which is actually very deceiving because it was quite a roller coaster series to get there for him to, uh, throughout the series. He really, really struggled to start games, especially games four, five, and six. He started game four, 0 for 8, started game five, 0 for 6, and started game six, 0 for 11. So he was 0 for 25 combined across three games uh, to start the game. <laughs> which is just unfathomable for a guy um, of his stature, especially considering that they actually won one of those games and almost stole another one of them. But uh, focusing specifically on game six here, he actually entered the fourth quarter one for 13. He had four turnovers and three points. So (laughs) more turnovers than points scored through three quarters. Uh, He did miss his first shot in the fourth. So he um, hit a low point of one for 14. Um, And he was honestly having... Probably the single worst game of his entire life. Um, (laughs) uh, Definitely one of the worst of his NBA career. I can't imagine he had anything like that in college or high school or anything to that point. But he was on the verge of a career-long legacy stain. Like LeBron in 2011, it would have been one of those where um, any conversation of him in a top five, top ten guy conversation, we always would have said, yeah, but the 2023 playoffs. Yeah, but the one for 14 game. I mean, it would have gone down as one of the biggest biggest single-game fails from a star in recent memory, um, and it would have been pretty tough for him to truly redeem himself, um, especially given how poorly he played in the 2022 finals. He was below 40% from the, the field for that whole series. So, honestly, it might have even taken him actually winning a title um, to have even be able to redeem himself from that. And I know that sounds like a lot, but it's just because expectations are high for this guy. 
Um, he's really good. He's a top 10 player. He's just starting to hit his prime. He's already made a ton of playoff runs um, throughout his entire career. I mean, this is his fourth Eastern Conference Finals, I believe. Um, but it would have been that, remember that time Tatum had a 2-1 lead, lost the last three games, started those games a combined 0 for 25, and then went 1 for 14 in the elimination game at home. Like, that would have been the narrative. Uh, and it would have been really, really, really tough for him. And there would have been a lot of question marks about him and Jalen Brown or do we need to break them up? Um, what is, where does the team go from here? Um, but he finished on about as high a note as possible game six in that fourth quarter after starting one for 14, he then, uh, has a 16 point fourth quarter. He makes four three pointers, uh, completely ices the game for the Celtics and it helps that the Sixers went ice cold. I will <laughs> address that later. Uh, but then they're able to get that win, which I mean, for his sake, I'm glad he did it because, like I said, it, it could have been really, really bad. Um, and then going into game seven, uh, <laughs> he follows it up with a 51-point performance. Uh, he shot above 60% from the field. He was 6 for 10 from 3, 13 rebounds, 5 assists, sets the NBA record for points in a game seven, uh, which <laughs> was not held for very long, Steph. Curry just broke that record in the first round with 50 against the Kings. But he was insane. I mean, this was an all-time performance, no doubt about it. His shot-making in that third quarter especially was just impeccable. Everything he was putting up was going in. And this has really been a microcosm of his career. At his best, we know that he can play as if he's the best player in the world. I don't think anyone doubts that, but he also is susceptible to the total stinker game, probably a little bit more frequently than you'd like. And it's got to just be so frustrating at times for Celtics fans, uh, especially uh, for this playoff run, um, because he feels like he's totally eliminated his mid-range game. Uh, he's worked a lot on his floater over the past few years, and he was starting to get a really nice, reliable one. And he's basically not even exercising that that part of his skill set. I um, mean, he's really only been shooting threes and layups for whatever reason. It's it's looked a little clunky at times. He's passed up some decent shots that he probably would have taken in the past. Um, but honestly, it's it, this is just because the expectations are so high for him, and rightfully so, like I said. He can be mesmerizing at times because of his inconsistency. And it's why I've been a little reluctant to move him into that top five range of players. Um, but hey, if they go on to win the title this year, which they have as good a shot as anybody, um, given who we have remaining in the playoffs, um, I think it's gonna it's gonna be a discussion. Um, you win the the title as the best player, you're always gonna be in that discussion. So, but I think a big differentiator for me with him is that it does kind of feel like he he's at his best when it matters most. This that was actually his sixth career game seven, and he's now five and one in those games. Um, and the only loss came his rookie year uh, against LeBron James. So. <laughs> Maybe the best Game 7 performer in NBA history, and he was a rookie. It's not exactly a fair, <laughs> even matchup there. Uh, but in those Game 7s, he's averaged 29 points a game, 9 rebounds, 5 assists. He shot 48% from the field, 50% from 3. Um, I know those numbers are probably a little skewed because of today. I mean, the one-sixth of the sample size was the best Game 7 scoring performance we've ever seen. Um, but again, he played his best ball when it mattered in Game 6. He also has a 50-point game. Um in the play-in back in 2021. So overall, um, very up-and-down series for Tatum, which is a big reason why it felt like a very up-and-down series for the Celtics overall. 
But both him and the team showed up when it mattered most. Um, and there was a lot of other things that um, led to the Celtics showing up when it mattered. Um, specifically Al Horford. He did a great job guarding Embiid. Um, he, I, I won't lie. He's looked a little washed at times in these playoffs. Uh, he's not shot the ball well. He was 11 for 40 from three in this series, which is 28%. Um, and especially when he's gotten switched on the guards, it has not looked great. Like game one, uh, when Harden had 45, they were switching Horford onto Harden almost every single play, and Harden was eating him alive. Um, so he's certainly not as versatile as he once was. He's one of his best attributes throughout his career has been how versatile he has been as a defender, but he's still very solid on big guys and coming into game seven and he had held them to 20 for 48 shooting when he was the closest defender, which is below 42%, obviously not very good. Uh, when you consider that he's, it's a seven footer, <laughs> it should be shooting higher percentage than that. And then in game seven, he held Embiid to three for 16 from the field when he was guarding him. That's below 19%. And he's always been one of the best at guarding Embiid. Um, one of the reasons why I feel like the Celtics have kind of had his number is because of Al Horford. He's been on uh, these teams throughout most of their matchups. Um, and the Celtics are now 3-0 against Embiid in playoff series. They are 12-4 and overall in playoff games across those three series. So only four games total the Sixers have won. Three of them came in this series, obviously. Um, and Horford's been one of the main reasons why that that's the case. Moving on to Joe Missoula, um, he's taken a lot of heat so far, and hey, rightfully so. I've been a Missoula skeptic. I One of the reasons I was lower on the Celtics coming into this year is because of him. He was unproven. We didn't know we were getting. They got up to a hot start, so it was kind of like all is well, but down the stretch of the season, they struggled, and he was getting a lot of flack specifically from their fan base. Um, so like I said, it was deserved. Um He's looked a little lost at times, in over his head, maybe questionable rotations, uh, often had lacked uh, adjustments. But give him credit here because he did make a very key adjustment in the series. Uh, for game six and seven, he inserted Robert Williams into the starting five. And Williams was mostly playing uh, on P.J. Tucker, so he's cheating off him on the corner when they had Horford on Embiid. And it really helped defending the Harden and Bead pick and roll. They were getting whatever they wanted with that, and specifically in Game Five in that blowout game in Boston, um, and other parts of the series as well. But yeah, once they made that adjustment, Embiid was not able to do nearly as much on that front, and especially not Harden either. Um, additionally, Marcus Smart was huge in Game Six. Um, I don't want that to sort of get tossed under the rug. Um, his best game in the playoffs, probably. Uh, and he, when Tatum was really struggling, he was the biggest reason why they were still in the game. He had 22-7-7, seven and seven, shot 8-15 for 15 from the field. He made good decisions. He was aggressive. Um, didn't have any, like, bonehead plays. And then maybe the best thing is that when it became crunch time, he actually deferred and let Tatum kind of do his thing and get hot. So Jalen Brown also has been a really steady force for them. Um, it's still been a little weird with his shooting volumes. They've been really low, um, but he's probably been their most consistent player in the playoffs. Tatum is probably is the best stats overall, but again, that's because he's been so up and so down that it averages out to being pretty solid, which is where he's at. Um, but Brown in this series, I mean, he shot 54% from the field, 43% from three. Uh, he only averaged around 22, 23 points because it was low volume, but he had 23 or more in every game except for one. And he now has 23 or more in eight of the 11 playoff games that he's played. So 
And two of the three where he didn't get to that number, they ended up winning anyway, so it wasn't necessarily a knock. They didn't obviously didn't need him to, to get to that number. Um, but just like Tatum, like I said, the Celtics have been a little let, less consistent than you'd like if you're a Celtics fan. Um, but, I mean, if they win the big game, I guess that, that's all that really matters. I know they don't really make it easy. I feel like this has kind of been a, a theme throughout all of their playoff runs over the past few years. I mean, they've played – the fact that Tatum's played six game sevens already – kind of tells you all you need to hear is they they play long series they they, they get some big wins but um it's not always pretty but at, at the end of the day they are in the eastern conference finals for the um i believe the third time in four years and i i think even uh the fourth time in six years but moving on to the sixers um probably the biggest reason the celtics won is because the sixers did what the sixers do and I said coming into the series that I refused to pick them versus any legitimate playoff contender until I saw them beat one. And they once again proved why that was a good decision and why I will continue to do that. Uh, they totally dominated Game 5 in Boston. They got anything they wanted offensively. Embiid looked like the MVP on both ends of the floor. Great contributions from Maxi and other role guys. And they looked like they legitimately might actually end up winning the series. But then... <laughs> They did what they do. Game six came around. They started pretty slow. Uh, they had a big third quarter. They had scored Boston by nine. They took a two-point lead heading into the fourth. They had all of the momentum. I was pretty back and forth to start the fourth. And, and then Embiid made a 14-foot jump shot with 6.13 left to tie it at 81. And the Sixers did not make another basket until 22 seconds remaining when the benches were already cleared. That is almost six full minutes of play without a field goal, five minutes and 51 seconds. It was just a total collapse on there, and they were taking bad shots. They were sloppy with the ball. They were looking for fouls, just bad body language all around. I mean, there was a point where there was still like a minute and a half left, and it wasn't, I mean, it was a single-digit game still, and they just like stopped trying. They're like walking down the court, like hanging their heads, and Marcus Smart's like, let's push the ball. I mean, it was it was really bad on your home floor too. Um, it, it really looked like they were about to pull it off and they couldn't do it and then get to game seven. It was actually a pretty hard-fought first half, I thought. Both teams played pretty well for the most part. Um, and the Sixers actually led for a good portion of the half, but the Celtics took a three-point lead heading into halftime. Um, the Celtics then proceeded to go on a 25-3 to run. Um, Tatum just could not miss. Uh, and the Sixers honestly looked like they were treating this like a mid-January game. I mean, there was just zero intensity, zero physicality, not at all what you'd hope to see um, in a playoff game, let alone in Game 7. Um, just bad body language from the Sixers all around. Um, and it was honestly just an, a total embarrassment. I mean, the third quarter, they were outscored 33-10. to 10. They failed to score 90 points in back-to-back -back potential closeout games. And it's funny because my dad is actually a huge Celtics fan, and, and he was a little worried going into the game, and I told him, just take a step back here and think about this statement. James Harden, Joel Embiid, and Doc Rivers with a Game 7 on the road after blowing Game 6 at home to clinch the series. If I told you that that was a scenario at any point during this season or last season, um, you'd say no way they're going to win it. <laughs> I mean, it's just like you couldn't write a better script for them to blow a game or get blown out or anything like that. Um, and just starting off with Harden here, I mean, he was just pathetic. He had two 
42-point games on a combined 62% shooting, 57% from three. And even with that, he still somehow averaged only 22 points a game and shot only 42% from the field. And that's because he had games of 2 for 14 with 0 6 from 3, 3 for 14, 2 of 7 from 3, 4 for 16, 0 of 6 from 3, 3 for 11, 1 for 5 from 3. That is 12 for 55 overall, which is below 22% from the field, and 3 of 24 from 3, which is 12.5%. He also had five or more turnovers in three of those four games, and three games with more turnovers than field goals made. Um, zero games did he have between 18 and 41 points. <laughs> he only had 42 or more, or six or 17 or less, uh, which is pretty hard to do. <laughs> um and look, I have been a hardened defender over the years. I thought he deserved the 2017 MVP in addition to the one that he did win in 2018. And I've got a lot of respect for him. Just in the fact that he was the only player and on the only team that ever even had a somewhat of a legit shot to beat the Kevin Durant Warriors teams at their peak. Um, and I think they honestly might have pulled it off had Chris Paul not gotten hurt in 2018. But looking at Harden now, it's it's pretty hard to defend him based on what he's done you know, in the playoffs throughout his career. I mean, he's 1-9 and nine in his last 10 elimination games. He has 46 playoff games where he shot below 30%. That is more than a fourth of his games. So at one out of every four games, you're going to get a not just bad game, but horrific game. 85 playoff games, he shot below 40%. That's more than half. So <laughs> more than half the time. He's shooting in the 30s. Uh, he has 50 playoff games with five or more turnovers. That's basically one out of every three games where he's got at least five turnovers. Um, and it's sad because this series didn't even tell us anything that we didn't already know about Harden. Um, we basically come to expect this. Uh, it's crazy because game one, I think part of why it was so awesome to watch him put on that vintage like throwback Houston performance is because it was so unexpected. <laughs> like no one thought he would do that. We're so used to him now, like shitting the bed and not doing anything in the playoffs. Uh, and so it's honestly sad to see. And honest, I think the worst part for me is just how he's playing out there. I mean, like just watching the games, he's, he's just foul baiting. Like he, he's had so many shots in this series where he's not even trying to make the shot and, and he doesn't even get the call half the time. So it just looks like he drives in and feels a little contact, does this weird hitch back where he, like, it's just trying to exaggerate the contact. But then when they don't call it, I'm like, dude, they, you didn't get hit that hard. You could have actually maybe made the shot if you just tried to make the shot. And so, I, and I don't know if refs are just not calling it because they want him to try and make the shot. I, I don't know. But it just, it just sucks because <laughs> I noticed that multiple times. And then he's also just turning down open lanes. I mean, especially in game seven, he was like, he had, was in the lane multiple times where, um, he could have put up a little floater. There was even one where I think if he'd just taken one more step, he literally would have had a layup, but he was just kicking out. It's like he doesn't want to shoot the ball, doesn't want to be aggressive, unless he feels like he can take any shot he wants. Like game one, it was kind of like, this is all me. I'm throwback hard, and I can shoot step backs and iso and blah, blah, blah. Then he has no problem shooting, but when he's got to like kind of fit into the team, he like he just doesn't know how to balance it. He He passes too much. And then not to mention, he's just sloppy with the ball. I mean, he's just had so many bad turnovers. Uh, another part of why that happens is, like, like I said before, where he's just trying to get fouled. If he feels like he gets fouled, instead of actually just trying to secure the ball, he just flops his arms up and lets go. And if they don't call it, it's a turnover every time. 
Um, and so I, I don't see any reason why we would ever expect anything less from him moving forward at this point, which, as I've said, it's just it's tough. Um, I'm not sure he's a, a winning caliber player. I'm not sure what kind of team he could be on um, where they'd have a, a winning formula. I mean, maybe if he's like a third or fourth option where you're really not relying on him and really all he has to do is pass and shoot wide open shots. Um, but I just don't know what kind of team he's going to be on where, where that would fit. Moving to Doc Rivers. This guy's now lost five straight Game 7s. He has 10 Game 7 losses overall, which is the most in NBA history. He's an astounding 4-13 and in his last 17 series clinchers. He's lost eight straight games that could have sent him to the conference finals. So with that, he hasn't made it out of the second round since 2012. And that's despite coaching players like Chris Paul in his prime, Blake Griffin in his prime, Kawhi Leonard in his prime, Paul George in his prime, Joel Embiid in his prime, Ben Simmons in his prime, and James Harden, who I won't say is in his prime, but he's still a um, all-star caliber player. He has blown seven 3-2 leads. He has blown three 3-1 leads. No other coach has blown more than one. He's blown 10 series where he had a lead at any point after game two. Um, and he's been hanging on to that Celtics title in 08 for a long time now. But I, I'm starting to wonder, you know, if, if he doesn't win that, do we even consider him a good coach? Like, what has he proven since then? He, he made two finals with the Celtics, um, but doesn't have a single other conference finals appearance outside of those two. That's 24 seasons he's been coaching, and only two he made a conference finals. And it's, as I laid out earlier, sounds exactly like he hasn't had a ton of talent. He's basically had uh, at least two all-stars on every team he's he's coached since it's the Celtics. Um, and it's not like he's been some regular season juggernaut either. If you exclude that 08 title team, he's only been a top two seed four times in 23 seasons. Um, and they actually didn't make the conference finals a single one of those times. <laughs> the other time he made the finals of the Celtics, they're actually the four seed. Um, and his best coaching performance he's, he's probably had was when he took the, uh, the eight seed Clippers to six games against the KD Warriors in 2018, which, I mean, they still lost the series, obviously, but the Pat Bev, Tobias Harris team uh, ended up going six with them. So honestly, I'd be shocked if he wasn't fired. I mean, especially after what we've seen with uh, Bootenholzer, Monty Williams, and Nick Nurse, I would be extremely surprised if he wasn't fired. Not to mention a report came out today that Harden does not want to play for him. So if they want any chance at retaining Harden, I think that you've got to probably let Doc go. And I think it's fair, honestly. I mean, given the state of uh, the M NBA coaching carousel, I mean, I feel like you kind of got to let him go based on uh, his performance over the last few years in falling short in the playoffs. But now I want to move to Joel Embiid. This is tough because I've always been an Embiid guy. I have said Embiid was better than Jokic. I've been on that train for years now. I thought he deserved the MVP this year. I thought he deserved it last year. And maybe even the year before that, except he didn't play enough games. So if he had played, I probably would have picked him. But I no longer think that Embiid should even be mentioned in the same breath as Jokic anymore. Um, Embiid finished Game 7, 5 for 18. He was 0-4 from 3. He had only 15 points, 8 rebounds. He was a minus 28. And there's only been four MVPs that have never made the finals in NBA history. One is Jokic, and he very may well do that this year. One is Derrick Rose, who I think it's a pass because his career was cut short for injuries. Um, one is Steve Nash, um, which he just never made it, unfortunate for him. 
And now the last one is Joel Embiid. And not only has he now made the finals, he's the only NBA uh, MVP in history to never make a conference finals. Literally no other MVP has not made the conference finals. And he's 29. The clock is ticking. You wanted that MVP so badly. Well, this is the pressure that comes along with it. You've got to perform. In years past, we've given that, well, they played a good team, so it's not really on him. No. You win MVP, you get expectations of an MVP. You cannot be the only MVP in NBA history to never make the conference finals. Uh, and not only has his team never been able to beat a decent playoff team, and beat stats consistently go down from the regular season uh, to the playoffs every year. This year, they were down nine points per game. Last year, they were down seven points per game. 2021, they were about the same, um, less than a point down, but still slightly down. 2020, they went up, but they got swept in the first round, so are we really going to applaud that one? Uh, and then 2019, they went down seven points per game. So that is a five-year sample size of most mostly going down, and the one time they didn't, he got swept. Um, it was just a really, really disappointing showing from Embiid here. Uh, his post-game comments were really weird as well, talking about how he, him and Harden need more than just him and Harden to win, <laughs> which is interesting because you guys went 8, 20, eight for 29 in game seven and Maxie and Harris both had more points than you. So I don't really know what you were trying to say by that, but it was not well received. Um, and honestly, I don't want to hear another word out of him about respect or awards or anything like that. Um, why don't you go beat a team in the playoff whose best player isn't Mikhail Bridges for once in your career and then you can maybe do a little bit more talking. Uh, but yeah, until they make the conference finals, I I'm just I can't take them seriously. And even if they do make a co one conference finals, I don't know if I'm going to be able to take them seriously. It depends how it happens. Depends who they beat. Depends how they look in the conference finals. This is still just no conference finals in the entire Embiid era. Um, like I said, Doc is probably gone. Harden has been linked to Houston for a while now. Which, by the way, that would just be such a weird move on his part. I mean... If you're still at least somewhat in your prime, he's obviously not in his prime, but he's like an all-star caliber player, and you just go from a contender to a bottom feeder willingly, I don't think we've ever seen anything like that. I mean, if he went there, they're still not going to be good. Even if they got Wembenyama, they'll probably be too young, and Harden might even like make them worse in some ways, at least stunt the growth of some of the younger guys. So it would just be kind of a weird loser move on his part, but honestly, <laughs> it wouldn't shock me. Um and if that happens, I, I don't really know what their plan is. I mean, maybe they try to trade for Dame with Maxi, the Harris contract, and picks. Maybe they do a sign-and-trade for Harden, try to retool a bit, use some of those assets to get someone else. Or maybe they just run it back. I don't know. Embiid's already 29. The clock's ticking a little. He strikes me as more of the loyal type. So I'm not sure if he's going to eventually ask out. But like I said, the pressure's on. It's on for him. It's on for the front office. It's on for the team. Um, and if they don't start <laughs> making a run soon, it's just, they're going to go down as losers. It, it's unfortunate, but they, they just will. <laughs> so moving on to Jokic, um, <laughs> got less negative things to say about him. Um, but yes, after the Suns and Nuggets were tied at two apiece, both teams winning their two home games, the Nuggets, uh, won game five running away. And then in game six, uh, went on a 19 to to nothing run uh, through the end of the first quarter to put the game out of reach. 
And the Suns were really never able to make it interesting after that. I mean, the game just got out of hand. Um, and my biggest takeaways here are that Jokic is just insanely good. I mean, there's a legitimate case he could be best in the world. I know I've said Giannis, but after his first round flame out, I mean, yeah, it's hard to argue with Jokic right now. In this series, he had 35, 13, and 10 averages on 59% from the field, 44% from three. He had a 53-point game on 20 for 30 shooting. He had a 30-17 and 17 game. He had a 32-12 and 10 on 13 for 18 shooting in the closeout game. And it feels like even when he misses, he follows his shot and gets an offensive rebound put back like 50% of the time. Uh, I just can't say enough about how good he is. Uh, it's He's a true pick-your-poison player with his scoring and passing. If you play him straight up, he's going to get to his spot and score anytime he wants to. If you blitz or double him, he's just going to find the open guy. It's very reminiscent of prime LeBron in that way. And as I said, I was an Embiid guy, and I am fully converted. Uh, I think Jokic is just miles ahead of Embiid right now, um, especially just from a consistency standpoint. And I think the big... Um, knock on Jokic versus Embiid was defense, but Embiid got pretty exposed in that Celtic series in the last two games. And Jokic pr- pretty much held his own. The Suns didn't really attack him too much. Um, and when they did, the, he was mostly fine. But Denver right now is just a well-oiled machine. Uh, they're just a better all-around team than the Suns are right now. Uh, they were the number one seed all year long. They have the best playoff record. They have the best playoff net rating. They have the best playoff offensive rating. Uh, they've got as much continuity as anybody in the league. They've had basically the same core of guys for about four or five years now. Murray and Jokic have developed elite chemistry, especially in their two-man game. It's really hard to guard. And maybe the best part about them is that everybody knows their role. Uh, they have extremely high-level role players too, but not only is everyone bought into their role, but everybody stars in their role really well. They had six different guys average double-digit points in this series. Everybody among those six shot 45% or better. Four of those top six are great shooters between Murray, Jokic, Porter, and uh, KCP. Uh, Bruce Brown and Aaron Gordon aren't quite as good there, but they can make it. you got to respect them. Um, I know Gordon shot very well in this series. They also have a real home court advantage. I mean, especially with the altitude, we saw the Suns start to kind of wear down in the fourth quarter of all three games in Denver. Um, and they were also just a great home team during the regular season anyway. Only Memphis had a better home record. Um, and they haven't lost a home in the playoffs yet. Uh, I think Mike Malone has done a really good job. He gave Booker and Durant a lot of different looks, even though they were just, especially Booker, just playing out of their mind. Um, he's also found a really good, reliable rotation. I know during the season he was kind of rotating the backup big, but he's got Aaron Gordon playing the backup five when Jokic isn't in. And it's been really effective. He's He's been really good there. Uh, Bruce Brown has kind of been their backup ball handler now. I know they tried Reggie Jackson a little bit during the regular season, but that didn't really work out. And honestly, I've really liked the Christian Brown minutes too. He didn't shoot super well in this series, but he's very solid defensively, and he's kind of pesky. just makes things happen when he's out there. Um, and yeah, different guys just stepped up for them in different games. Um, and the games that they didn't step up, Jokic kind of realized that and decided to take over. So, I mean, game one, Gordon had 23 points on 9 for 12. Uh, Murray had his best game as well with 34. Game two, KCP goes 4 for 4 from 3. And this was an ugly game all around, but uh, because of that, Jokic went for 39. And they only had 97, so he scored 40% of the points. 
Um, game three, Michael Porter Jr. had 21 on 6 for 10 from three-point range. Game four was a, a star game. Um, Jokic had 53. Murray had 28 in that one. Game five, then Bruce Brown drops 25 off the bench on 7 for 11. And then game six, KCP has 21 on 7 for 11, 17 in the first quarter. So you've got different guys stepping up every single game. You know what you're going to get out of Jokic. You know that Murray is a little inconsistent, but you know at least half the time he's going to be really good. And it honestly, it took an all-time Devin Booker performance to even beat this team in a close game two times. Um, he was 34 for 43 over two-game span, 79%, which is ridiculous. I'll get into him a little later. Um, but to me, the Denver should be the favorite moving forward. It feels like they kind of have that championship mojo this year. They've got um, maybe the best player in the world. They've got a, a really nice co-star in Murray. Not an all-star level player, but Jokic is so good that I don't think he needs a true all-star next to him. There's like three or four guys that like you can get away with only having one all-star as long as they have a, a pretty good number two. Uh, which I would say Murray qualifies as that um, because Jokic is just so good. But then all their role guys know exactly where to be, exactly what to do, and they play really together. On the other side of this, the Suns are, this is the second year in a row that they are down 30 at home, at halftime, in an elimination game. And this was bad. I'm not going to say it wasn't bad, but it, it was not the same as last year. I will say that. Last year, they were the number one seed. They um, had the best regular season in their franchise's history. They were the betting favorites, not only in the West, but in the entire league to win the championship. They were fully healthy. They had a 2-0 lead and a 3-2 lead that they blew both of. And they were playing just a much worse team in the Mavericks with Luka and then just mostly role players. And I'm not, they did not lose this series because of injuries, but it definitely made it tough for them. I mean, Chris Paul gets hurt in game two. And when he left that game, they were up eight points with about five minutes to go in the third quarter. And he had just started to get it going. He was three for three with six points and three assists through the first half of that quarter. Um, and the Suns did still leave heading into the fourth, but their offense just kind of fell apart in the fourth. They only scored 14 points in that, in that entire quarter. And I do think Chris Paul, who's starting to get it going, probably could have helped that. I don't know if they win that game, uh, if he's still playing, but I think it helps. I mean, campaign really wasn't playing well in that game or in the first few games of the series, so I think they have a chance. And then who knows after that? Maybe they, I mean, maybe they end up losing one of the game three or four. But regardless, it obviously would have helped them. And then on eight inside. Look, he was awful in this series. 11 points a game, 8 rebounds. He was just low effort game to game. There was a highlight reel of him standing around. And he allowed Jokic to get whatever he wanted. I mean, this was probably Jokic's best playoff series in his career. If it's not, I'm not even sure which one it was. But um, but his, with that said, his absence was still very much felt. Um, Aiton was a minus 10 net rating-wise in this series. But because he was out there forced to play Bismack Biembo, who was a minus 59 <laughs> net rating in the series. Uh, and he was in for the entire 19-0 Nuggets run. So he <laughs> definitely was hurting them. <laughs> Look at the numbers. Um, additionally, Kevin Durant was really not very good in this series. I know his numbers end up being pretty good, but he started one for 10 in game six. One of his worst halves I've ever seen him play. Um, he ended up 45% from the field for the series, but he, that's well below what he was for the regular season, and he had some bad games. I mean, he was 8 for 19 
in game six, but he also had games of 10 for 24, 12 for 31, 10 for 27. He just wasn't his normal efficient self, you know. He was six for 27 from three, which is 22%. That's overall. I mean, six threes in six games for him is like crazy low uh, from a volume standpoint. And he just had no legs on his shot by the end. I, I'm sure those minutes were catching up to him a little bit. Um, but he was also just off on a bunch of shots that he normally makes. He was sloppy with the ball. He had nearly four turnovers a game. He had turnovers in games of seven, five, five, four. Uh, he also had a bunch of near turnovers too. He was just really loose dribbling the ball, uh, especially the games in Denver. He was not good. Um, and then obviously he had a really bad first half in game six too. Um Ultimately, it is going to be pretty hard to put this series on Booker. He had arguably the two, the best two-game <laughs> playoff stretch in NBA history. He averaged 42 points a game, 10 assists on 79%, 34 for 43, which I think they said was the highest percentage in a two-game span for a, someone under 6'6 ever, uh, which makes sense. I bet. <laughs> and... I don't know who else is on that list, but there's no way they were hitting that volume, 43 shots in two games. So um, I think before the last game, people were really started to elevate him as a clear-cut top 10 guy instead of a borderline guy, which I think people viewed him as before. Um, but I think part of that is also because LeBron might be losing a step. Tatum's been a little more inconsistent than you'd like to see. And then John Morant's got all the off-court stuff. I'm not even going to touch on that in this podcast, but I could probably do a whole segment on that. Um but I'd agree he's in the, the back end of that top 10 group now. But I'm not going to lie, the elimination game stats are not good. He's had three now, and he's averaged 14 points a game in those with four turnovers, 30% from the field, one for 14 from three, and he's lost all three. Um, so he, he's got really good playoff stats overall for his career. Um, he's been especially good in closeout games, and it's hard to argue with <laughs> the rest of his stats. But, it, I mean, his maybe his three worst games – are his elimination games, which is just unfortunate. Um, and he also was the only starter that played in both this year's and last year's. So those are really bad numbers, but I, I think it probably has a lot to do with the workload he had here. Um, plus, I mean, it, it's just hard for me to knock him when he shot 57% from the field for the series and 55% from three. Like, sure, if you want to say he didn't show up in the elimination game, do it, but... Uh, what else do you want from the guy? He had the, like the best first four games in a playoff series for a guard ever, maybe. So whatever. Um, but looking forward to the Suns. The reality is for this team that they they only had eight games together before the playoffs, and I I think that really matters, especially when you contrast them with the Nuggets and how much continuity they've had. They've really been learning on the fly this whole time in terms of how Booker and Kevin Durant fit together, um, what the roles for the like Aiton and Chris Paul look like, and then carving out a, a real rotation for the bench. Um, and it again, it should not be lost how unprecedented it would be for a team to acquire not only an all-star, but a top five to top ten player midseason and make a deep playoff run, let alone win a championship. I mean, Rasheed Wallace in 04 is the only modern example, and He's certainly not uh, Kevin Durant. <laughs> um, we just have to remember that this is not a half-season rental to go all-in on this year's playoff run. Durant sells three more years guaranteed on contract, and Booker has five more on his deal. His Supermax hasn't even kicked in yet. Not to mention he's only 26, and we just saw what he did in the playoffs just entering his prime. 
And look, Durant very well may decline at some point in Phoenix. I'm sure he will at some point. Um, but this will be a minimum of three years with the two of them and what could potentially be two top 10 players moving forward. Um, the trade was a three to four year window investment. Uh, this is not only for one year or even just half a year this year is basically what it was. So looking forward, um, I think another transaction cycle is going to really benefit this team. They should have the opportunity to round out the roster with better fitting role players. Um, I think they're probably going to trade both Aiton and Chris Paul um, or at least find an insurance policy for Chris Paul, um, which is crazy to think about. Um, I think they're probably going to turn try to turn both of them into multiple contributing players so they can just have a little bit more depth and they don't have to run these guys into the ground, especially over the span of a full regular season. Um, and I really thought the odds were pretty close to zero that Monty was going to get fired, but... That was before game six, and if you have two straight years of being down 30 on your home court in halftime of an elimination game, I get it. I mean, it's hard to do. That's just, it's got to come back to the coaching. He didn't get them ready. I'm not saying the players aren't to blame, but Booker was the only starter across both the two games, so it's not like it's the exact same five guys going out there that just didn't get up for the game. So I feel like a lot of that has to fall on coaching. And I, I think it doesn't help him that there's a lot of good candidates out there right now between Nick Nurse and um, Mike, Mike Budenholzer, just to name a few that have been linked to the Suns. Um, and look, would I have fired Monty? I don't know. Um, I imagine that they consulted Booker and Durant. I think I saw a report that that is what happened. But um, I can't blame them without the last two seasons ended. It was an embarrassment, and a lot of that has to fall on him. Um, I know they've been linked to Ty Lue as well. I think that would be far and away the best choice for them, but I have no idea what that looks like. I don't know if the Clippers are even open to that or if it's even their choice or whether Ty Lue can just choose to leave. I, I, I genuinely don't know. So um, I'm not going to talk too much on that, but obviously that would be the, the best choice in my opinion. I think he's an elite coach. Um, but also for next year, and this may be even more important than any personnel or coaching moves, but they're going to have an entire offseason and training camp to actually get fully acclimated and build chemistry and find a new system that can maximize their talents uh, that they do have on the roster. Um, and look, was this season a disappointment? Yes, it was. Um, we know what kind of talent they have. I'm sure they didn't want to envision losing second round. Um, but I don't know if I'd call it a failure because I do think the context matters and um, this year's run was always going to be sort of like a, a building for next year just because they didn't get the full season together. Um, and no, this is not a, a Giannis, uh, presser joke or anything like that. I dis I told you, I wholeheartedly disagree with Giannis's take that there are no failures in sports. There are failures in sports, but the point is if the Suns were to win it all next year, are we going to look back and be like, dang, what a failure they didn't win in 2023? Like definitely not. And I know that I've called other teams out for losing prematurely and maybe their failures or they should blow it up or question their future. But that's because we've seen multiple iterations of those teams over the years, like the Embiid Sixers that I just went in on. Like we've seen them for five, six years now. The Giannis Bucks has been five, six years. I know they won a title, but only one. Kawhi and at the Clippers, that was what, three, four years now. And they haven't even got the conference finals with Kawhi healthy. Um, LeBron's Lakers, they missed the playoffs their first year. Was that a failure? No, they won it <laughs> literally the next year. The Tatum Brown Celtics, they made the finals just like the Suns did, but they haven't won a title. Are we going to say they should blow it up? Uh, probably not now uh, if they make the finals again. But again, they've been together five years or something. Um, 
And then the Jokic Nuggets, if the Nuggets fall short in the conference finals, that'll be, what, five years with Jokic now in somewhat of a prime, and they haven't done anything. So um, the failure label cannot come this early. Um, we've still got a minimum three years of these guys together. And look, if they end up done and or Katie's washed and they didn't even make the finals or win a championship or anything like that, then yeah, obviously it totally could be a failure. But um, it's possible, but we just have to see it play out a little bit more before I'm ready together. So moving to the Lakers and Warriors series Friday night, the Lakers blew out the Warriors by 21 points. Um, and I was always worried that they had kind of put themselves in too big of a hole this Lakers team, they started the year 2-10. and 10. They were the 11th seed at the trade deadline. I liked the moves they made, but they were on the outside looking in of the play-in. And once they worked their way back into the playoffs, I did pick the Grizzlies because I felt like that was the safer pick. I picked the Warriors because I felt like that was the safer pick. So I can't say that I thought that they would make it to this point, but I've always said that the Lakers had a puncher's chance against anyone in a series because it's just of LeBron and AD and the ceiling that they have. So with that said, I'm not I'm not necessarily shocked that they're here, but I am surprised at how they got here. I always thought that if they made it to this point, it would mean LeBron was back to regular playoff LeBron and him and AD were probably carrying the team, especially offensively. But it's honestly been the complete opposite of that. It's been a total by committee attack from them offensively. Uh, different guys have stepped up uh, big time in each of their wins. So game one, uh, D'Angelo Russell and Schroeder both scored 19 points apiece. They had nine assists and one turnover combined. Um, and then even in game two, the Lakers did lose in a blowout, but Rui Hachimura did have 21 off the bench in that game. Um, then D'Lo scored 21. I mean, five three-pointers in game three when the Lakers won. Game four has already been coined the Lonnie Walker game as he scored 15 points in the fourth quarter alone and was their go-to guy down the stretch. Um, Austin Reeves also had 21 in that game. And then game six, uh, Austin Reeves hit four three-pointers and finished with 23 points in that one too. So that's five different guys outside of AD and LeBron that have stepped up for massive performances for this team um, and contributed majorly to uh, wins that they've had that they probably don't get if these guys don't step up. And honestly, I don't think it's been talked about enough, but major credit to Darvin Ham. He's been pulling all of the right strings so far in these playoffs. Uh, D'Lo has been pretty hit or miss from game to game, and Ham has had no problem sitting him down the stretch in those games in favor of Dennis Schroeder. Lonnie Walker wasn't even playing, and then suddenly he's taking and making all the big shots for them down the stretch of a massive game. Uh, then uh, Jared Vanderbilt was the primary defender on John Morant and doing a very good job of that in the first round. He was playing 20 minutes a game. He was starting every game. Um, and then by the end of this series, he wasn't even starting, and he was barely playing double-digit minutes down the stretch. In game six, he only played in, uh, once it was already garbage time. Um, and Darvin Ham was just not afraid to ride the hot hand. He's not afraid to sit guys who aren't playing well. He's not afraid to adjust based on the matchup. Um, so just really great job by him overall, especially for a first-year head coach, to have the sort of command of his team and empowering his guys, even when they haven't don't always get consistent playing time. Um, it's just been really impressive to watch. Um, it's also hard to understate how great Anthony Davis has been defensively. Among players in the playoffs, this is not active players, this is total players, anyone who played. Um, he's first in defensive rating with an insane 98. That's like some 1990s um, defensive rating stuff. First in defensive win shares, uh, which LeBron's actually second there, so um, second, another Laker on that list. First in blocks, first in steals plus blocks, 
first in defensive field goal percentage against at 39%, first in defensive field goal percentage in the paint at 45%. Um, and overall, the Lakers have been the best defensive team, and it's mostly just because he's been anchoring this defense. Um, and it's not only that he's affecting shots by blocking them, he's also deterring people from even taking shots in the paint at all. I mean, we saw the discrepancy uh, from the free throw line for the Lakers for a lot of these playoffs, and a huge part of that is because players are just not confident going into the paint when Davis is there. So they're taking more jump shots, and you're less likely to get fouled on a jump shot. Meanwhile, the Lakers are very much a paint-oriented team. Um, shooting's not necessarily their forte, but they have guys that can't shoot. Um, and then moving to LeBron, look, even though his stats are down across the board from what we're accustomed to, he's played a very important and very steady role on this offense. He's picking his spots. Um, he also started to finally make some threes, at least at a somewhat respectable rate. He was 33% this series um, after just really bad uh, <laughs> shooting in the first round. But look, his basketball IQ, is, it's been on full display. Um, and it might even be at an all-time high, which is really saying something for him because he's like the top five highest basketball IQs of anybody that we've ever seen in the league. A perfect example of that is in Game 4 when LeBron was just going at Steph, play after play after play, making work on defense, very reminiscent of the 2016 Finals um, when the Cavs beat uh, the Warriors because they were just making Steph put in a lot of energy on that end of the court. Um, and it tired him out. I mean, he, he looked affected uh, on that end because he did not shoot the ball well in that game and a few other games as well. And LeBron's feel for just knowing when to be more aggressive and when to kind of let the other guys take over is unlike any player I've seen. And, and he's really letting teammates actually create on offense a lot more than he has with any of his other teams. I mean, most of his other teams have really only had one other guy that he trusted to do that. And normally he was a star player. And meanwhile, he's got guys like Austin Reeves and Dennis Schroeder, D'Angelo Russell, none of those guys who are like all-star caliber players. And he feels very comfortable letting them kind of run the offense for at least portions of the game um, until LeBron feels like he needs to step in. And ultimately, <laughs> it's so unfair to LeBron because we're comparing his play to what we normally see from him. Um, but if you compare him to other players in the league instead, he's still playing so well. I mean, the narrative's like, oh, he must be hurt. He's not playing as well. He's not shooting well. But like, if you look at him compared to the rest of the players in the playoffs, he's been a top five player probably, at least top ten. Um the way he's commanded their offense, he still ended up being their leading scorer in this series. 25 points a game were knocking him, and <laughs> he was like an efficient 25 points a game, and they won the series easily. And he's actually been pretty good on defense, especially in this series. So um, kudos to him, and it really impressive what the Lakers were able to do. Um, on the Warriors' side of this, look, even though I picked the Warriors in this series, the overall result result for them is not at all surprising to me. I've been down on them all year long. They were as mediocre as it gets throughout the year. They started 10 and 10. They were 20 and 20. They were 30 and 30. They were 17th in defensive rating this season. And that mediocrity carried over into the playoffs. I mean, they barely got past the Kings first round, a very inexperienced team. Um, and they finished with a nearly dead even net rating in the playoffs. Of 16 playoff teams, they were ninth in offensive rating, eighth in defensive rating. So right in the middle for both of those, <laughs> as close as you can get. And I think Steve Kerr's comments after the game were very telling on his team's ceiling. I mean, he basically said that this team maxed out what it was capable of. He admitted that he never really thought they were a championship team. 
I'll say that, I mean, they probably never even had a chance if they didn't think internally that they could do it. Um, I really do think the Draymond punch in the preseason had a pretty big effect on this team. And, and Poole and Draymond both had quotes that kind of alluded to that. I mean, Draymond basically outwardly said that, hey, man, there was some stuff that was a little too public. Um, I don't know what else he would have been referring to. Um, and Poole basically said, like, yeah, it was all business. It was basketball. We were just business basketball. That's really <laughs> all he was saying. So basically implying that they're maybe not on the best of terms from a personal level. Uh, but in terms of this series... Clay basically announced to the whole world with his play that he is no longer a reliable option for a legit contending team. I mean, he was awful. He had a great game in game two where he went 11 for 18 and made eight three-pointers. But outside of that, he didn't shoot above 45 or 40% one time. He had lines of 9 for 25, 5 for 14, 3 for 11, 3 for 12, 3 for 19. That's 16% for the closeout game. Jesus. Um, and then that's 23 of 81 overall outside of game two, which is 28%. Uh, so he was, I mean, he was just uh, awful on offense, very bad. And especially the last three games, he made three, sorry, he made nine combined shots, 27 total points in the last three games, nine points a game, <laughs> 21% from the field for the last three games. Uh, he also had some beyond head scratching shot attempts in the pivotal game four that decided uh, decided whether it be two two or three one. Um, totally inexplicable heaves from three late in the game. Uh, I think one of them there was like five in the shot clock. He probably could have taken a few more dribbles or passed it, but he's fading out of bounds, nearly like a thirty footer. And then like a possession or two later, he pulls up with like twenty on the shot clock, fading out of bounds from three, and you can see S- Steve Kerr's reaction that he's. Just didn't understand why I took the shot. I don't think anyone understood why I took the shot. <laughs> um, and then not only was he bad, Jordan Poole was, I mean, he was virtually unplayable. He was eight points per game. He was 34% from the field, 25% from three. He had a good game one. He made six three-pointers. And then after that, he scored 29 total points the rest of the series, 30% from the field in that span. And he went one for 17 from three after making six in game one. He's also probably the worst defender on the court. Most times he's on the court. Um, his contract is looking pretty bad. <laughs> and honestly, he just doesn't have the requisite basketball IQ to be a contributing winning player right now. I genuinely think he's got the skill set to do it. I think if he took more catch-and-shoot threes, uh, just hit the right spots off the ball, move the ball a little bit better, put in at least a little bit more effort defensively, I think he could be a decent player, but it's just... The wild shots just are not going to cut it when you aren't contributing anywhere else. Um, Like Steph takes some wild shots, but he makes them, and he tries hard on defense, and he's a good playmaker. And Clay, like throughout his career, has had some not great shots, but he used to be a really good defender, and he at least made his spot-up threes. Like Poole just needs to focus a little bit more on good shot selection, not getting out of control, and his turnovers are just killer for them down the stretch. Um, yeah, I mean, you can just see the way that Steph <laughs> like reacts when he makes a bonehead play late and he doesn't do that a lot with teammates, but like game one, for example, I mean the game one where pool literally, um, had his best game and then he takes a 30 footer with 10 seconds left when they're down three and Steph is just sitting there like, what are you doing? Of course they all backed him up afterwards, but there's no way any of them thought that was a good shot. I couldn't believe he shot it. 
But the one person who I know is probably not going to get any criticism is Steph, and I honestly don't really know why. There were four blowouts in this series and two toss-up games, so the three biggest games of the series for the Warriors that they basically had to win were the two close games and then the Game 6 elimination game for obvious reasons. In those three games, Steph went 33 for 82. That is 40% from the field. He was 13 for 41 from three. That's less than 32%. And he averaged four turnovers a game, and the Warriors lost all three of those games. Not to mention that in game four, Steph missed two go-ahead shots in the final 40 seconds. He had the ball with about five seconds to go and turned it over when they had a timeout when he was lying on the floor. Um, I know this team has bigger issues than Steph's. I'm not saying that he's the reason they lost. But I can't understand why the media coddles him so much. I mean, just two weeks ago, I was being told by the media members that he might be the best point guard of all time, and he's better than Kobe and Tim Duncan now. And even that him and LeBron might be on a comparable level, especially if the Warriors won the series. And why? Because they won a first-round series against a team with a 17-year playoff drought? (laughs) So if he's supposedly at that level, then why do we just give him a pass when he flames out second round and plays his worst in the most important games and the most important parts of those games. Like, I think Steph is a phenomenal player. I think he's probably a top 10 player all time. I'm not I'm not shitting on him in that regard, but I just don't understand the favoritism and the positive bias that he consistently receives from the media. It's like, if you want to praise him to the levels of those all-time greats, then we got to hold him accountable to the level of those all-time greats. And the fact of the matter is he didn't play well in the series at all. He shot the ball poorly. He turned the ball over a lot. He made bonehead plays in the most important moments of the games that they had to win, and they didn't win any of the swing games or the uh, elimination games. But as far as moving forward, they've got some decisions to make for sure. Uh, Jordan Poole, do they trade him? I think they probably will. I don't think it's just because his play, which was not good. I also think the drama with Draymond, I don't think you can bring both of those guys back right now, to be honest. Um, I think his contract's going to be really difficult to move, though I don't think it'll be impossible. Um, I don't really think any contract is impossible to move. Uh, someone's going to bite. He's still young. He's got talent. Um, so we'll see what they can get, but I, I do think they'll probably end up moving him. I probably would have said Draymond was going to leave, but throughout the whole year I thought that. But all of the talk from both the Warriors and him since the series ended, has been pretty positive. Like, they they want him back. He said he wants to be back. I know that's what you're going to say, but it it does feel genuine to me. Um, I kind of think they will end up working something out, and he'll stay there. Um, And I think part of it's going to be contingent on if they trade Poole. I think if Poole does not get traded, then Draymond might leave. And I don't know if that'll be his choice even. So, Um, But, yeah, I, I think he'll stay. And then on Clay's front... I know they talked about him wanting an extension, but he's making 40 something million right now. I mean, he better take a massive pay cut if he really wants one. Because uh, to me, he's just totally washed right now. He, look, he can have some big games still, but his offensive consistency is just not there anymore. And he is not at all even close to what he was defensively in his prime. Then Bob Myers, their GM, who's one of the best executives in the sport, sounds like he's going to be gone. Um, I'm not sure what that means. I don't know if that's going to majorly affect them. Um, I, I mean, the new CBA isn't doing them any favors from a um, salary and luxury tax situation. And if they're not a championship contender, it's pretty hard to justify the number that they're going to be paying uh, just to maybe not even contend. 
So if you ask me if the dynasty's over, I'm not going to definitively say yes. I'm not going to definitively say no. But I will say I think if they cannot add a reliable second option, someone more reliable than Wiggins, Poole, or Clay, then I do think it's over. I think they'll still be a playoff team. I still think they can win some playoff series. But I think their days as a true championship contender are over unless they can get a second option that's more reliable. If they do, then yeah, they can keep it up. I totally think so. I think Steph is still one of the five best players in the world. Um, I think they've got a really good foundation with Draymond and Kerr and a good system. But again, I just think that they need a, a better second option. And I know they won it last year. We're basically the same team, but I think they got a little bit more fortunate than uh, we want to remember. I mean, they played Denver first round with an awful supporting cast with uh, Porter and Murray out. Then John Morant gets injured in round two, so they don't have to play him and then close the Grizzlies out with really no all-stars. Then they play the Mavericks, who were kind of a fake conference finals team. I know they beat the Suns, but they're not your typical caliber conference finalist. Um, and then the Celtics just weren't really title-ready, in my opinion. They were still young. Tatum was only 24. Um, he obviously didn't play well um, in that series either. So they have picks. They have contracts that they can move around, I think. So we'll just have to see. Um, but unless they get that option, I don't really see them being true contenders uh, moving forward in the West. Moving back over to the East, so Friday night, the Heat knocked off the Knicks to clinch their spot in the Eastern Conference Finals, defeating the Knicks in six games. I got this series exactly right. I had Heat in six, and the reason why is because I thought they had the best player and the better coach. But even with that, it's it's truly remarkable that they're back in the Eastern Conference Finals, the Heat. They've made three of the last four now. This is with Hero still being out for basically this entire playoff run. They're playing four undrafted guys in their rotation. Uh, and this is, I mean, probably Spolstra's best coaching job. I'm so impressed by him year after year after year. Um, and honestly, they might have even swept the Knicks had Jimmy played in game two. I mean, they had that game one, but couldn't make shots down the stretch because they just didn't have a go-to guy. Um, and a lot of the role guys, honestly, did not shoot very well in this series. Gabe Vincent was uh, 27% from three. Duncan Robinson was... 29% from three. Kevin Love was 24% from three. And Jimmy Butler majorly came back to earth. He shot only 43% in the series. Not necessarily bad, but uh, considering what he was shooting before, um, <laughs> he was definitely on a heater. Um, but they really won this series with their defense. They held the Knicks to 100 points per game for the series. They held them to eight full points below their regular season offensive rating. They turned the Knicks over four more times per game than they did themselves. They held every single Knicks player other than Brunson and the centers that are only shooting layups below 43% for the entire series. And they held them as a team below 30% from three. And to me, other than their defense and Butler's brilliance, Lowry has been the key to this run. I mean, he looked beyond washed in the regular season. He shot only 40% from the field. He shot 35% from three. He lost his starting spot late in the year, but now he's just been a totally different player in the playoffs. I mean, he's the ideal floor general for a playoff team. He had six total turnovers in six games of this series. So obviously that's only one per game, and uh, that's a, it was good for a six-to-one assist-to-turnover ratio for him. He's been great defensively as well. His shooting is back to what it's been for the majority of his career after a down year this regular season. And he actually leads the team in net rating with a plus 21. 
Um, but it's just crazy that they've even made it this far. Um, they're playing with house money at this point in the season. I don't think anyone expected them to even win one round, let alone make the conference finals again for the third time in four years. Uh, it's just really impressive. And on the Knicks side, um, I'm going to start with the one bright spot uh, for them in this series, <laughs> and that's Brunson. Brunson averaged 31, 6, and 6, shot 50% from the field. He was phenomenal offensively. If it wasn't for him uh, playing to this level, the Knicks probably would have gotten swept easily in this series, I would say. Um, and I've said throughout the year that uh, Brunson's pretty much already surpassed what I thought he would likely ever be in this league. Um, obviously a little bit of a late bloomer once he got some more opportunity, but he is totally balled out in the playoffs this year. I think it's very safe to say that he is clearly the Knicks' best player moving forward after some debate during the regular season between him and Randall. Uh, but with that said, virtually everybody else on the Knicks uh, <laughs> was terrible in the series. Hart, Toppin, Grimes, and quickly all shot below 30% from three. Uh, not to mention Josh Hart uh, airballing multiple times from what looked like five feet to the side <laughs> or something. Um, RJ Barrett actually did have some really good moments. He had four games to 24 or more points on pretty efficient shooting in all of those games, but his game one was very deceiving on that front. He was very good in the first half. You could argue he single-handedly lost them the game down the stretch, though. I mean, he was a turnover machine. He played complete hero ball. He basically iced Brunson out down the stretch. Um, and then he went 5-for-16 in game three, and then in the elimination game in game six, he was 1-for-10 from the field. So he wasn't that bad overall, but really up and down and was just a total no-show in the most important game. Then Mitchell Robinson was really dominant in the first round and didn't have nearly the impact he had um, in this round. So he only had five blocks total in six games after having 11 in five games in the first round. He was a lot less efficient. He shot 64% in round one, 55% in round two. He averaged two full offensive rebounds less per game in this series than round one. He doubled the amount of turnovers he had. Uh, Miami was actually doing some hacker Robinson, <laughs> so he shot a lot more free throws, uh, but he still actually scored much less this series overall, and he only made 41% of his free throws. He was 9 for 22, so the strategy was actually pretty effective for Spolstra, um, and because of that, he struggled to stay on the court a little bit at times because um, Tibbs had to take him out because he was not making free throws, um, and maybe most importantly, he was not able to really bother Bam at all in this series. Uh, he had a huge impact on Mobley and Allen and their play. But Bam averaged 19 and 10, shot 53% from the field. He was uh, one of the Heat's best players. He, he played really well. So, <laughs> And then we move to Julius Randle, who was just a disgrace in this series. Um, Randle was so bad that I genuinely don't think the Knicks can – justifiably bring him back to the team next year. He shot 41% from the field. He was 28% from three. He had only one more assist total than turnovers. He was three for 14 from the field and one for seven from three in the closeout elimination game. And the saddest part of all is that this was by far the best playoff series of his career. <laughs> he actually shot above 50% in two games, which he had never even done even once in the playoffs before. Um, but it's a shame because in his best shooting game, he had six turnovers, was very bad down the stretch, and fouled out of that game. Um, and overall, he still has easily more turnovers than assists in his playoff career. He's 34% from the field in his playoff career and 20% from three uh, for his career. But even stats aside, his body language was just awful down the stretch in these games. Um, 
he literally had a quote saying that the Heat want want it more than we do. And that was before the game the series was even over. <laughs> Maybe you could say that afterwards, but you still got some games to play, man. You gotta believe you can win. His vibes have just been awful. Um on and off for the last two years, but especially in the playoffs. Uh, don't get me wrong, he deserved his All-NBA selection. I don't want to take that away from him, but he has proven to us that he is nothing more than a regular season player. And if I'm the Knicks, I'm doing whatever I can to get this guy off my team uh, as soon as this offseason. Uh, but taking a step back, this was a wildly successful season for the Knicks. They should be extremely satisfied with how this year played out. I Still think uh, they're more than one piece away from legit contention in the East, unless that guy was like an All NBA guy. Uh, then maybe they they could, but I think if they even add like another above average starter, I still think that they're not Finals contenders. Um, and I think they've really reached their ceiling with this group. Um, the fact that they couldn't beat this Miami team, uh, I can't even imagine what they would have looked like in, against Boston or. Um, Milwaukee if they were to have played them if Giannis had stayed healthy so um, but I think maybe they should stand stand pack a little bit and then try to strike on the next star that wants out I mean maybe Embiid we'll see but I also think if they can do like a Randall plus one or two other assets for a Carl Anthony Towns I would do it I mean Towns is not exactly the anti-Randall in terms of attitude and uh, basketball IQ and whatnot but he's better he's much 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 better um don't get me wrong. He's more talented. Uh, he's performed better than Randall in the playoffs. It's not actually saying much. I think Randall might be the single worst player performer I have ever seen in my life. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I think Cat would, would fit nicely with this team. They'd be a lot uh, better offensively. They'd be deadly with him and Brunson uh, on the offensive end. So, But moving on to the conference finals matchups, we've got two rematches of the bubble, uh, the same four teams that we had back in 2020, uh, matching up again here in 2023. So uh, in the West, though, I think this matchup is wildly different than it was in 2020. Uh, On the Nuggets side, Jokic is just way better. He was good back then. But, I mean, this guy is, like, maybe best player in the world right now. I think the Nuggets have a lot more experience than they did back then, too. I think that was only their second playoff stint in the Jokic era. Um, they've made it every year since then, so he's got a lot more um, experience under his belt. Um, and then they have a real home, home court advantage this time. I know the Lakers had home court last time, but it didn't matter because it was all neutral site. Um, but I think that'll come into play at least a little bit here, especially with an older player like LeBron. And then on the Lakers' side, LeBron's obviously not what he was. He's still very good, as I said, but he is probably in he was in the running for best player in the world in 2020 and since they won it all i think it was hard to argue that he wasn't the best player in the world especially winning finals mvp um and he picks his spots a lot more selectively now he's always been a pick a spot kind of guy in general but he's much more selective with it these days um i think this lakers team is a lot more balanced than the 2021 though it was pretty much lebron and ad and nobody reliable on a night-to-night basis um kuzma was a shell of what he is now um, KCP, Rondo, Danny Green, they were all good role guys, but really just 3 and D guys, except for Rondo, more of a, a pass and D guy. Um, but they weren't really shot creators for themselves. Um, Rondo was a little bit for others, but you didn't really have to respect him as a scorer, which made it easier for him to guard him in that uh, regard. Um, but D'Angelo Russell, Austin Reeves specifically, those are guys that just add a whole new dynamic um, that they just didn't have on that team back then. And the Lakers were a really good defensive team that year, and they still are now. So I think that that's just something to call out. They're elite defensively um, in both matchups. 
Um, but with that being said, I do actually lean towards the Nuggets in this year's matchup. I think what it's going to come down to for me is consistency and what I'm getting on a night-to-night basis. You know exactly what you're going to get with Jokic. He's going to average near a 30-point triple-double. I, I know Anthony Davis has been phenomenal, but he's really been at his best as a uh, like rim protector, sit-in-the-paint guy, help defender as guys come into the paint. I don't really know how he's going to do on a like one-on-one matchup with the guy. It's a totally different type of uh, defensive role to play. Um, I'm not saying he can't do it. It's just different from what he's been asked to do thus far. Um, I am, imagine they're going to put him on Jokic. So I'm sure he'll do as good a job on Jokic as we've seen anybody do. Um, but again, it, it's a different ask. Um, more of a one-on-ball one on defender versus like a roaming um, help defender in the paint. I also think the Nuggets' role guys are... Just more consistent um, than most teams' role players, including the Lakers. You know a little bit more what you're going to get from them um, versus the Lakers. It could be anybody on any night, but they uh, that goes both ways just in the sense of on any given night, any of them could not have it. So, um, Also, AD has been the opposite of consistency. They've really struggled when he's been off. Um, LeBron hasn't exactly been extremely consistent with his shooting. Um, his scoring has been relatively steady, but we haven't seen a lot of big scoring games out of him. Um and I, ultimately, I think I'm just I just trust where I'm getting from the Nuggets every night more than the Lakers. The Lakers can beat them on any given night, but um, they've just got more question marks in terms of guys that can have off nights more so than the Nuggets. Um, but it's going to be a fun series because whoever wins this is going to be a very fun storyline. Um, if Jokic makes the finals, then we've got the is he the best player in the world? Uh, question I think probably even if he makes it but doesn't win it um, I think you gotta at least consider it I think Giannis the only one even in debate uh, if that happens and then he starts creeping into the all-time great territory especially if he wins the title um, I, he's probably pretty close to the Giannis's of the world at that point to they both would have uh, two MVPs they both would have one title they both would have one finals MVP um, Jokic is uh, Still got some ways to go, too. So I, I, I think that would be really um, get him on the right foot in terms of heading towards the all-time great territory. And then the other side of this, if LeBron makes the finals again, then that's just going to be obviously a great storyline. It'd be his 11th finals appearance. He'd get a shot at number five. Um, and it, that would just be so remarkable to see him do that at age 38 in his 20th season. I mean, it would. I don't think we would ever see anything like that again, honestly. Um, but with that said, I, I'm going to pick the Nuggets in six. I think the Nuggets will win the first two at home. Then the Lakers will win the next two at home. And then I think the Nuggets will win game five at home and then go to L.A. and close it out in game six. So it will be the same game script that they had versus the Suns. Win two, lose two, win two. Um, but I do have the Nuggets advancing to the finals um, in six games over the Lakers. Then uh, just lastly, moving to the east here. This is actually the third Eastern Conference Finals matchup between these two teams in four years, which is pretty crazy. I don't know if we've ever had that, but uh, the Heat won in 2020. The Celtics won in 2022, so we've got a nice little tiebreaker here. Um, and interesting enough, is actually the third different coach the Celtics have had. <laughs> they had Brad Stevens in 2020, uh, Udoka last year, and now they have uh, Joe Mazzulla. And then obviously the Heat have had Spolstra the whole time. So very different coaching dynamics for these teams. But with that said, especially with Hero out, the talent uh, discrepancy is pretty major here. I see no reason why the Celtics should not win this series. Uh, I mean, they're currently very heavy Vegas betting favorites, 
But they've got home court. They have a significant talent advantage, like I said. Um, they probably have the best player in the series in Tatum. I know some people might prefer Butler right now, but uh, Butler didn't have a phenomenal second round. Uh, we know that he can be inconsistent as well. Uh, I think him and Tatum, either one of them can be the best player on any given night. Um, and it might come down to who's the best player uh, more often than the other uh, in terms of who wins the series. But with that said, every series the Celtics have played this far, it just kind of feels like it's gone a little longer than it should have. feels like they probably should have wrapped up the Hawks in five. They probably should have handled the Sixers in six. Um, and they've had at least one game in every series um, and two games in the Sixers series, really, where they just totally were no-shows and just had a really, like, honestly disheartening performance. Um, and that was game five versus the Hawks where they just collapsed down the stretch. And then games one and game five versus the Celtics um, – where they just didn't take them seriously in game one, and then game five they just laid a total egg. Um, so I don't see why that would suddenly change, um, especially against a team like the Heat, because uh, they execute at a really high level, which the Hawks and Sixers do not do, to be honest. <laughs> they have elite coaching, which the Hawks and Sixers do not do. And probably the most important thing is these guys absolutely believe they can win and that they belong here. Um, there's definitely no one on that heat sideline who's like, oh, man, we're lucky to be here. Like, they, they think they can win this thing. Um, whereas with the Hawks or Sixers, I strongly doubt that was the case, especially with the Hawks. Um, so if those teams can take an extra game or two, I don't see why the Heat wouldn't be able to. I think that normally I would say Celtics in five or something like that. But uh, I think just because of how the Celtics have been inconsistent, and I honestly do trust the Heat way more from a coaching consistency and just execution standpoint. Um, so I am going to go Celtics in seven, but that is just because um, they're inconsistencies, and I think that they're going to win just off their talent, um, even though the Heat have some other advantages, like I mentioned. And I think this is going to be a true alternating series. I got Celtics in game one, Heat in game two, Celtics in game three, Heat in game four, Celtics win in Boston game five, Heat win in Miami game six, and then Celtics win in seven. Um, I don't think... I think it won't feel as close as it is. Like I think the Celtics will absolutely have one or two, if not three, like blowout wins, because um, they're that kind of team. Like when they win, they win big, um, but then they have these weird stinker games, and that that's the kind of game that the Heat always win. It feels like so. I kind of feel like if there's more close games, the Heat will win. If they're not as close, the Celtics will win. So I think it'll be one of those where the stats show that the Celtics. Um, should have won by in less games um, and played much better and obviously deserved to win, but I think the Heat will sneak in a game or two that they probably shouldn't have won just based on what we've seen from these both these teams so far. And that's going to do it for this episode of the Sean Jones NBA Show. Thank you so much for listening. Um, really looking forward to these conference finals matchups. I will probably do another episode. Um, at the very least, at the conclusion of them, we've also got the NBA draft lottery. Uh, so the likely winner of the Wembenyama sweepstakes tomorrow night, uh, right before game one of the Western Conference Finals. Um, I'll probably do more frequent ones during the finals, so not just one at the end, but uh, kind of checking points throughout the, the middle of them. But um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. We're, I'm sure we're, we're going to have some really fun series down the stretch. Uh, could get a, a Celtics-Lakers, uh, always classic matchup. We could get a Lakers-Heat rematch of the bubble. Uh, or we could get a Celtics-Nuggets, which probably looks like the two best teams right now. So um, whatever it is, I'm looking forward to covering it with y'all. But that's going to do it for today. 
So thank you so much for listening. I will talk to you soon. Thank you.